Hi, I'm Gio Puyat, and this is Quantum Creatives, a podcast to get to know the stories, strategies, and lessons of Filipino creatives from different fields. Quantum Creatives is produced by Anima Podcasts. Okay, so before we start the pod, I'm happy to announce that Quantum Creatives is an official partner of Design Week Philippines 2022. On its 11th year, we're celebrating Design for All with tours, talks, and workshops for the entire week. I'll be moderating a talk on design careers with special guests from different design sectors. So basically, I'll just be doing what we do best here in Quentin Creatives and having these in-depth conversations with creatives. We're super excited to be a part of this, and I hope you guys can catch the live stream this October 15 at 10 a.m., on the Design Center of the Philippines' Facebook and Kumu pages. Alright, so welcome to another episode, and today my guest is Erwan Yusaf. For as long as I've been in filmmaking and advertising, I've seen this guy hustle on his own content creation journey. From the fat kid inside to his channel and studio right now called Feature, he is a guy who takes the business and creativity of content creation very seriously. I'm really happy I got to pick his brain on all kinds of things in this conversation. So most people know him or judge him by his association with celebrities. Kapatid ni Solen or asawa ni Ann Curtis. And we do touch up on that. In fact, I think it's partly what fuels his drive to take on challenging things and really prove himself. I think he gets a lot of undue haters, frankly, from his restaurant ventures to his taho content. But that comes with the territory when you really put yourself out there. The truth is that people dish out critique so easily because they're not the ones on the battlefield. And after this conversation, I realized that you really do have to give it up for this guy. He really busted his butt on his career and put in the time and took all kinds of risks. So we cover a lot of things here, starting from his winding path towards being a full-time content creator. I found a lot of his insights very interesting, and I think it's inevitable for someone in his position to have a unique perspective on things like marketing trends, creativity, and the culture of food and travel. And towards the end of the episode, we talk a lot about the mindset needed to keep going. And I think people who come across imposter syndrome will really relate to what he has to say as a guy who's had to deal with his own dose of self-doubt as well. So, yeah, that's it. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Erwan Yusaf. Okay, so welcome to another episode of Quantum Creatives. Uh, we have Erwan Yusaf. So, Erwan is a creator who has, for as long as I can remember, has been making, making a name for himself in food, in content. He's a writer, producer, an entrepreneur. We've Cross paths many times uh, on a few production sets, but yeah, I'm excited to have everyone on the show. How are you doing, man? How was that? Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, I think I'm, I don't know if we've actually ever worked together. We've crossed paths so many times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did attend the shoot, but I wasn't your director. I think we were doing stuff with Diageo. Uh, we did some things with Gab where we tried like a cocktail, yeah. um, a cocktail series. And that was shot by Gab, I remember that, yeah. Yeah, it's, I've always kind of seen it from from an outsider perspective. So I've been really curious to get your thoughts on, you know, this whole journey of content creation you've been on. But first, you know, I, I wanted to get just context now, a little background, right? Because the moment I got to know you, you were already doing Fat Kid Inside. You had a bunch of restaurants. And um, just for context of the show, right? Like, what kind of kicked off that interest for food with you? I mean... I think we're roughly the same age. I was watching Anthony Bourdain on TV, traveling and eating his way through the world. It seemed like such a cool job. But yeah, I'm curious, what was like an early influence or like a childhood hero you had that sparked that interest? I mean, coming out of high school, I knew I wanted to get into food in one way or another. And I had the option to either go to cooking school um, at this school called Grégoire Ferrandi in Paris or to go to business school. And I took the very conscious decision of going to business school because I didn't really see myself, you know, standing on my feet and cooking for people in the same restaurant over and over again. And, and it, that didn't really kind of attract me. So I decided to pursue business and ended up working in various businesses in and around food. 
So it was always kind of like an innate interest just because I liked cooking and I liked eating. But the whole media side of food didn't really start until I was based in Russia for a couple of years where I was running a food operation out of Eastern Russia. And I was taking care of a bunch of bars, restaurants and pastry shops over there. And just, it was a lot of work, but I still needed some sort of creative outlet. So I would cook at home. And I remember I just started recording myself cooking these videos or cooking, cooking this food rather and started posting them online. And I saw that there was some traction to it, mainly within my own community on Facebook at that time. And I realized one of the things that a lot of people were confused about was weight loss and fat loss uh. and, and healthy eating and stuff like that. And I had just recently kind of dropped a lot of weight. And so I thought, okay, maybe I can bring value and help some people here. So that's where I started the website, thefatkidinside.com. So it was just a written blog, written website, uh, where I developed a lot of just healthy eating quick recipes, whereas where we don't sacrifice flavor. And after a while, I realized writing was great, but people needed some sort of video reference when it came to food for instructional purposes. And so I started recording my hands, kind of making those recipes. And yeah, and then it kind of just blossomed from there. Cool. Wow, man. I mean, just with that answer, that already sounded like a lot of responsibility was uh, you were handling a lot of stuff at the time. Um, how old were you back then when you were when you were in Russia, when you were trying to manage all these things? When I came out of college, I was 21, 20 turning on 21, so fairly young. Yeah, I was just looking for a, a big challenge, a big job. I had previously, when I was in college, I was one of those weird people that instead of taking summer vacations, I would work uh, during the summer, but I would make sure to work in places that were really enjoyable. So I ended up doing six months in Bangkok, six months in Shanghai, six months in Greece. Um, and for six months, I also did a, a seasonal job in Paris also for six months while I was studying. And so I really loved the idea of just going to a different country and working because I felt that's how, I was, that's how I could immerse myself and adapt myself to the culture right away. Because once you're working there, you're with employees and you get to discover more about the food in the city much faster than, than being a tourist, right? And so I really love that. And so I kept looking for more and more challenges. So after college, I said, okay, what's the biggest challenge? So I had a couple of job offers in Paris that were kind of like, you know, really starting at, at the bottom. And I realized that there was this job offer from Russia where I would start kind of at a managerial level, which I thought I could take on already. But that was the catch. It was in, in Eastern mm -hmm. Russia. And so I've always had that spirit of going to strange and challenging places. So that's why I decided to do it. I'm curious what it was like in the, the USF household. Are you Bunso? Are you the yeah, Bunso? Uh, so what were you seeing yeah. at the time? I mean, was Silasolen already kind of getting into that celebrity world? And were you kind of looking for something that you could have yourself at the time? Uh, what was it like? So I have an older sister who's, who's now based in Singapore, and she was kind of between Paris and Singapore working corporate. I decided after college to work corporate as well, and even a couple of years after college, I was still working corporate. Uh, Selene was always kind of more of the artist um, of the family, and so she, when I came back, she was really just doing makeup. So at one point, she was just a makeup artist in the Philippines. I mean, she by just, I, I'm not, I don't mean to be demeaning, I just mean... That's what she yeah. was focusing on and not doing anything in front of the camera. And she was also kind of interning for Lulutangan, I believe. So she was getting into fashion because that's what she studied in Europe. And yeah, you would see her kind of get projects here and there from time to time. But it was nothing that kind of convinced me to go that direction either. I've always been someone driven by value and seeing what kind of value I can bring to something. And I only started really looking at whether or not I could have my place in media once I had a proof of concept um, behind me. And so Selene, as Selene went on a very different path and she was doing very well, it took me a few years to catch up to that and kind of be within that same sphere. Because at first I really wanted to make sure I, I built a name and I wasn't just seen as the brother of Selene. Or at that time I was, Anne and I started dating, you know, 2010. So at that time, Anne and I also started dating, so I didn't want to be the boyfriend of, of Anne Curtis. And so that's why before going full on into to media and food media specifically, I was still kind of on that restaurant track because that's where I came from. That was my bread and butter. I came from restaurant and, and restaurant operations. And so I knew I could potentially bring value there 
And so I, I put up a restaurant group. We opened a couple of restaurants. You know, some of them thrived successfully. Some of them were complete failures. But just like anything in the restaurant business, it's, you know, it's very, very difficult. And only once I felt that I had a good base and people knew me for something particular that I realized I had the, the right to jump into uh, food media. I just find it so interesting that, you know, you went through all these things before eventually getting to where you are now. But before we get there, I, I do want to ask about the restaurant ventures, right? So I remember clearly Niner Ichinana opened up uh, ground floor of Globe Studios. That's when we started going to Globe for meetings and stuff. And yeah, and right now I see you still have a bunch of businesses, but you've kind of steered clear from the resto business. What did you learn all these years from doing restaurants in the Philippines? Well, restaurants is one of the toughest business wherever you are in the world. It really is a tough business because you're dealing with supply issues with farmers, with in inflation when it comes to your cogs or your cost of goods, rather. You deal with hyper-competition because every other restaurant, quote-unquote, is a possible competitor. You're dealing with rent increases mm -hmm. and location uh, issues. So it's a really technical and difficult business to be in, which is why I enjoyed it because it was it's like managing this whole little world around each restaurant. And it comes down to when I was in my 20s, again, too big of an ego thinking that I could do multiple things at once. And we had a couple of successful restaurants under our belt. And then our group decided, hey, let's just open a bunch of other restaurants. And the issue, what happened there is we started losing focus. And so if I could go back and do it all over again, which I, I wouldn't because I learned so much from it, but I would have done it by opening one restaurant and then just replicating the same restaurant in different locations versus what we did, which was kept uh, keep having to create new brands and new restaurants because it, it looked cool to have a portfolio of brands. And honestly, very selfishly, it's very creatively satisfying to keep creating new brands and new systems and new uh, new things like that. Um, but ultimately, that was kind of like a downfall is a lack of specificity. And so currently now, you know, I'm still very much involved with the palace and, and Yes, Please. And I take care of the, the beverage program there and the concepts. Um, and uh, also with my brother-in-law, Nico, we have a business called Bolzico Beef where we, we import um, Argentine beef and then we have a restaurant in Delhi under that as well. And, and that has kind of shown the maturity Hopefully, my maturity throughout the years is is learning how to be specific in business and focusing on what you're really good at. Um, and so, the restaurants that we still have today really showcase that. Cool, man. So you have your practical side in in the businesses that you've been doing, and just to circle back to content creation, has that been sort of where you get your creative fix with what you've been doing with content? Because I assume all of these were, you know, going in parallel while you were doing the restaurant stuff while you're doing your entrepreneurial stuff now. Um, could you just kind of take us to the start of how that content creation started from Fat Kid Inside the blog, and then eventually, you know, I started seeing you do travel shows, food shows with Seabiscuit, right? How did that take form to start? So we started, uh, I started the FatKidInside.com uh, as a written blog, which was mostly recipe-driven. And then, like I mentioned, I really felt the need to try to uh, for visual, for people to visually consume those recipes and, and video was just kind of starting. So I was using like an old Bluemix GX1, I believe. Really shaky and tripod, terrible uh, light, but people would read the recipe and watch the video and understand how the dish was put together and, and just made it easier. And so once I understood that video was just a great form for people to learn new things, um, and that's when I was on Vimeo at the time, and then one year, two years into it, I, I moved into YouTube, which was literally bare bones just starting. And I started creating kind of like these, these videos, uh, these cooking recipes, which were just shot in my house by myself, uh, shooting mostly my hands, which is still super uso nowadays, right? And from time to time, showing my face just to intro or outro um, the food that I was making. And obviously in parallel, I was watching kind of Ramsey and, and, and Bourdain and all, so I started messing around and putting an OBB in and just whatever, kind of make it feel like a show, right? And I kept doing that for a couple of years and then Seabiscuit took notice and they were an upcoming production company and they were really interested in getting not only into commercial projects, but also content projects. And so I was like, okay, we've done food, we've done alcohol, 
let's mess around with travel content. And this is where kind of like that fascination with, with Bourdain comes in is I, I loved what he was doing. And I was like, okay, let's try doing this. So we went ahead to Taiwan. It was just me, Nikki, and Mon. Mm, yeah, Mon. Yeah, me, Nikki, and Mon Kizan, which Mon is still, still with me today. Yeah. Like we still work together. Yeah. And we went to Taipei and we shot in Taipei overnight, 36 hours, barely. And so we flew red eye on Friday night and we came back to Manila Sunday, extremely early morning. We shot just everything we could shoot, going out to bars, going out to restaurants, going to clubs, markets, had no plan. Just basically I had a map. I had all the waypoints in the map of where I wanted to go. And I said, let's just shoot the hell out of it. And let's just do spiels everywhere. And it was a really tough edit, but we eventually made it work. And I had to start doing, I had to write some voiceovers to make up for the issues that we had with, with uh, audio and then put it together and then realized that the, the VO was actually really, really worked. And so we kept it in the pilot. And then I sent that to Cebu Pacific and I said, hey, I have this new show called Overnight. Do you want us to put a series for together for you? And they're like, yeah, cool. So they ordered, I think, 10 episodes. Wow, nice. And so from zero to nothing, we all of a sudden had 10 episodes to shoot for a travel show. And so I did that with Seabiscuit and we completed most cities in Southeast Asia um, while in parallel doing some of the cooking videos in, um, in Manila. And at this point, the restaurants were still ongoing. So I had a commissary for the restaurants where we were doing the food production. And I had a tiny little space in front of the commissary in Poblacion. And it was enough for like a 20 square meter kitchen. And I said, hmm, okay, since the cooking is kind of like our cash cow in terms of the easiest to produce and the fastest to post to, to do post-production on. We need a base to shoot these videos out of. And so I created this little space called the red light, which was in Poblacion, which you know, very creatively called it the red yes. light. Um, and I was still not hundred percent sure about content. Like all these things were going on, but I was still not hundred percent sure I could live off this. And that's why I made it in the commissary. And that's why I made it in Poblacion so that we could do pop-ups. So we did some pop-up dinners there so we could earn from that and pay the, the rent that we had. And the red light became kind of my first official, unofficial studio. So it was like this big stainless steel box. And it's, that shows how I'm not experienced in production. It was stainless steel, so it was impossible to light. <laughs> like there are glares everywhere. The light bounces off everywhere. But it worked for a while. So we were there for about two years. Um, and that went well, it ran its course. Um, and then I think it was 2017 where I said, okay, I think this is a viable. 2016 was the year I proposed to Anne. And 2017, we got married. And so the year of 2017 for me was, okay, how do I go from a professional hobbyist to a professional? Because I wanted to make sure that once I was married and everything, I had kind of like this very set direction became very specific in what I was doing. And we were going through a lot of issues with the restaurants because we were closing a lot of them. And closing restaurants is never mm -hmm. really fun because you're talking about each restaurant, maybe 40 to 50 employees. So mentally and physically, it was extremely exhausting. And then having to do that side by side with content, it, I just, I reached a breaking point. And so at that breaking point I said, okay, I need to create space in my mind. And so I need to choose one or the other. I mean, you're laying out the the, the objective, you know, reasons why you went to for content creation, you know, you saw an opportunity, you went for it. But just when you were talking about your travel show in, in Taiwan, the first time I, I saw you really light up, you know, was there sort of this emotional, you know, click for you that kind of ticked off that, that fun, that creative itch, you know, for creating content? Because I mean, you could have not done it at all. You know, you could have not been like, hey, let's do this travel show. You could have just went straight to your restaurant, which is like a full-time job. But at the time, was there something that kind of clicked and like, hey, this is actually fun, you know? Because for me in, in production, it's like, it's kind of the most bonding experiences you can have with people, you know, like being with your crew on set under a time limit and just coming up with something that you all pitched in for, you know? I think for me, I mean, it circles back to my love for cooking. I, even from, um, we're talking about middle school here, I would invite 
lots of people to the house and I would cook for everyone. And my parents would invite their friends and they would let me cook se seven, eight course dinners for them when I was 14 Damn, and 15. <laughs> I just love, yeah, I love putting food together. I love getting people's reactions. And so hosting a cooking show for me was, was natural. It's something that I love doing. And so I thought, how can I showcase this passion to people? And why I started with health, health and weight loss is because I went through a lot of struggles and I really thought that this could be really helpful content for a lot of people. And so that's why I started doing cooking videos is because I was doing cooking videos specifically for health. And for the longest time, I focused just on healthy food and healthy recipes because I really saw that the value that it could bring to people's lives. And when I decided to start doing travel content, you can ask any of my friends, I'm the de facto travel agent. Like, I love organizing travels. Mm. And I think that's something that came out of me when I was in college, always wanting to work in different countries is because I love to be able to quote unquote, consider myself a local within a couple of weeks, just because I think I do enough research. And so anytime I go to any country, you'll see me researching for a week or two weeks on that country. My Google Maps is a mess with pins everywhere um, because I hate itineraries, but I love discovery. So I'll find myself in a district. I'll open my Google Maps and I'll say, hey, I actually pinned 15 places right in this district. Let's go check out as many as possible. That's crazy. I'm the same way, dude. Like, like for you, what you're describing is like exactly um, what I like doing when I'm in another country. Uh, my wife will probably laugh at that. But same, man. Um, yeah, <laughs> my Google Maps is a mess. Let's move over, over to when you have the show already and you mentioned pitching it to Cebu Pack and eventually doing this for lots of brands down the line. I'm curious what your strategy is or your style that you develop uh, in terms of pitching. You know, I get that question a lot. People come up with content. Hey, I have a show. Do you have like a pitch deck I could use or like what kind of structure do you use? And yeah, it's it's essentially coming up to a brand and you know selling your creative, your talents, or having like a packaged item already. Yeah, what is your approach to that, to pitching and and talking to brands? It's changed a lot. So previously, it was really talking about what we did and about myself and what we could contribute in uh, for a brand. Now it's really morphed into me convincing brands to get into sponsored or organic content online because I right now I advocate for brands to become themselves content creators and so now I'm actually not selling my services at all what I do now with any pitches that we have is I ask brands hey would you allow me to talk to your marketing team for an hour I'd love to just present to them what I see currently is very important for content marketing and where I see this industry going over the next couple of years and let's just have that discussion and I found that that was a more progressive and inclusive way of pitching because it convinces the brands to get into the sphere, not specifically with me, but eventually when they do need needs, then they come talk to me and I can kind of help them out. And so nowadays it's a bit more generic based on why I think everyone should be making content. And after I have that initial meeting, then I can kind of get feedback on terms of what your, what specific objectives are because I don't think what I do is good for every brand. Some brands can't benefit from what we do. And so only when I have a good grasp of what they want exactly, then we do create a specific show for that. Interesting, that's a unique approach. I'm curious what sparked that change from the initial, a little more obvious approach of, hey, hire us to do your videos. Like how did that change from getting us as a supplier to do your videos? Because I realized we were good at, I realized what we were good at. And, you know, I started really looking in, into understanding what made us tick, right? So at that point, we were probably called the Fatkin Inside Productions already. And what made us unique from every other production company or um, any other content creator out there was exactly that, is we were a production company headed by a content creator with our own publishing capability, right? So at any given moment, we are creating content for brands, but we're also creating content for ourselves that we're not getting paid for. We're just doing it out of passion, right? And so I really wanted brands to understand that, that we were just creating content for us to publish, but a lot of the times we wanted to see how we can replicate what we do for the brands that we work with. And so I realized it was more important for me 
to make people understand the value of content versus people working just with me. Because every brand I talk to, I always tell them, I said, if you have a marketing budget and you're giving all that marketing budget to me, you're doing something wrong, right? If you have an overall marketing budget, some of it should be for linear, some of it should be for digital. And when you have digital, some of it should be for organic content, some of it's paid content, and some of it's KOL and influencer content. And so it was, it's always best for me to start very general and then hone into objectives and goals of the brands. And, and now that, so we, I don't know if you saw, but last year we made the change from Erwin Yusuf to feature because for the longest time, I didn't consider myself an individual. If you look at all my past interviews, I always say we, because as you know, in production, it's, it's a team effort, right? It's always going to be a team effort. And so I felt that being called Erwin Yusuf under our main platforms misrepresented what I was talking about and it wasn't congruent and it made me feel uncomfortable and that's why we switched over to feature. So now what's really cool is that everything I've been saying over the last couple of years of considering myself a publisher or a media company has come to fruition because we actually publish content under feature media where we do branded content for brands but we also still do our organic content that we love doing. And then now more and more, we're doing content with other hosts and other influencers and other producers who just need a platform for their videos to be seen. And we work with them for that, for documentaries. And then the Fat Kid Inside Studios produces straight for brands as well. So now we can actually offer a myriad of services, both from just the pure supplier standpoint to supplier and consultant to supplier consultant publisher. Yelling. Yeah, I, I've definitely been following Feature. And yeah, that's why I wanted to talk to you today because I just really find it interesting. It's kind of the evolved Pokemon version of what everyone's been doing. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I got wind of it when I saw your video during the pandemic. And I wanted to ask you about that because I got really curious. It seemed like a really sincere uh, video. You were going through a lot of creative self-doubt, which is very relatable. Entering fatherhood changing up the business. Could you expound on that time in your life and what eventually led to the creation of Feature? I think every creator goes through imposter syndrome at one point or another. We also, each time we have some sort of creative achievement, all of a sudden look behind our back and, and we see something that we're not good at. We also feel like, well, me specifically, my, my biggest issue was always like, I don't feel like production companies would consider us, consider us a production company because they saw us as a vlogger slash content creator. They didn't take us seriously. For filmmakers, didn't consider us filmmakers because we worked because we worked purely on digital content. So I, I always like kind of like that chip in my shoulder of maybe not feeling like, shit, do we really, do I really deserve to, to be here? What can I actually call myself? I had no idea. And so I felt that internal struggle with the labels really represented what I was going through inside creatively in terms of just being frustrated to just not wanting to be on camera all the time. Because at the end of the day, a lot of the reason why I got into it, and you can trace this back to, to the very beginning, was because I wanted to provide value in some way or sort of form to either help people, to entertain people, or to inform people. So it was really important for me to, to how does that come into fruition where at the end of the day, it's still only me, right? And for the longest time, I was saying, you know, I'm, I'm doing this because I want to publish more about Filipino culture and Filipino food heritage and be an advocate for that. And, and I was like, but why, you know, if it's me standing next to a, a Filipino cook making something, a lot of that attention is, is pointed to me, which shouldn't be the case. I should be able to do documentaries on just this cook or just this particular product, and that should be the focus of the video. And so it was really frustrating to have to always be in the videos because I felt like it, it diluted what we were trying to do. And when I was in, in Australia and I was stuck and my team was still here working to, you know, trying to work in terms of the stuff they were doing. And I was working in Australia, kind of sh again, shooting, cooking, cleaning, just doing everything like I used to do in the beginning. I really realized I was like, you know what, it's been, I've been in this business for 10 years. Why am I back here? Mm -hmm. Like, why am I in this situation again where I'm shooting myself, where I'm cooking, I'm doing the dishes. And not that I don't enjoy it, but it, I realized I was like, that's not growth. It's just, I did what I was doing 10 years ago. I was just doing more of it. But at the end of the day, I was doing it in the same way. 
And so I said, okay, it's time to do things completely differently. And how do you do things completely differently? It's just you separate yourself from the brand. And so it was a huge decision because it's a scary one, right? You, you built this platform uh, for the last 10 years and all of a sudden you went out and the platform worked because it was me, right? And so the biggest fear here was that I bring enough value to people that if I take myself out of the equation, is this still successful? Do people still find value? Am I considered a filmmaker enough? Am I considered a production company enough? Am I considered a good enough storyteller now that if I take myself out of the equation, people will still enjoy the content that we're putting That's out? a huge risk, man. I mean, I guess in Filipino culture where, you know, everything points that you know, if, if you have a celebrity name or whatever, use it, you know? And that seems to be like a counterintuitive right. thing, but also something that's honest to your main objectives, you know? Yeah, and, and it just, it, it was extremely scary. Like, I mean, when I did it, I was like, I don't know if this is going to work. And then all the brands contacted me and they were like, what are you doing? And like, this is because I switched my YouTube and my Facebook and they're like, those were your two main platforms. Like, what are you doing? And I said, okay, let's just trust this process. And I mean, doing it during the pandemic probably wasn't the smartest thing to do at hindsight because when we did that change, we were able to kind of bring some people on, but not as much as we wanted because we still were in lockdowns. We still were kind of limited to what we could shoot, right? And it's only this year where I think feature has really become, you know, what I envisioned it to be. So it took us a couple of months to really find our, our footing, but now we're producing, we're still producing cooking shows, but we're also producing travel shows. We're also producing documentaries. And we're also doing a lot of stuff now that we have our own studio. Uh, we're also doing a lot of stuff straight for brands. And so it was a scary year, but I think people finally understood it and then when brands now come to our studio here, which is a, um, like the space is 10 times bigger than, than our last studio, the brands understand like, whoa, okay, so you guys are serious about, I always saw you as a content creator, but when they show up to shoot, you know, we're 10 people, we have all the highest spec gear, we have all the highest spec lights, we have multiple sets that we can switch in and out of. And so they're like, okay, content is important. And so it just, it, 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 yeah, it really worked out after a year. Galing. That's a good place to be, man. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about uh, managing your team. No? Um, I've seen you brought in Sala Abby Marquez, who's big on TikTok, Chef Martin. And then, yeah, my rapport. Kayo. So it's nice to see, you know, what's that been like kind of collaborating with new people and, you know, sharing the camera uh, frame with, with these new talents? Like, how did you find them, I guess, in the first place? To them, you know, I, I reached out to tons of people. I posted so many videos telling people what we're doing and what we're about. Um, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but then when I was starting out, I was doing, when I was starting out, I was doing everything for free. Like, that's just who I am. I knew I needed proof of concept. Um, and I, maybe it's because people are kind of scared of, of the time commitment or whatnot. But what I've always said to people is features here as a platform. Right. So if you've ever had an idea for a cooking show or a travel show, if you're a really good storyteller, writer, or producer, you're someone that wants to make a name for yourself, contact us. We will give you our full capabilities as a production company. So you get to work with professionals, professional gear, professional camera, come with your concept. We work on your concept. We produce it together. We publish it on feature and we see how it goes. And then maybe one day a brand comes up to us and everyone gets paid for doing the work. And so people like Chef Martin and Abby really quickly understood that. They came on, we realized it could be financially uh, beneficial for all parties and they kind of joined the team and which is really great. But that offer and that invitation is still open to anyone out there. Um, and it's funny, if the reason why I did those call outs is because if I was a kid starting in this game and I saw someone like myself saying, hey, do you want to show on, I don't know, do you want to show on Buzzfeed? like? send us an application or send us a, a pitch, I would be on that in five seconds. But no, it doesn't happen here. So I, I would love for more people to contact us for us to put these things together. Like we did a show for Belle, for your cousin. We did um, a show for Nadine. We did a show for Celine. And we didn't get paid to do to produce those. We produce it because it's fun and because we get to run it on feature. And maybe we earn a little bit on YouTube but not much to even cover the production costs of one of those episodes. But it just really, I've always been a, a fan of, you know, putting my 
just doing what, doing what I said. And so I think if there are creative people out there who do have something to say and don't have the team to say it, you know, come see cool. us. You heard it here, guys. Maybe you should do like a Willy Wonka golden ticket kind of thing. <laughs> but no, we're doing, we're doing a show in November. We're producing it. It's called The Next Food Content Creator. And uh, we'll start producing that soon. So we're, we're going to fly in food content creators. And there's a bunch of them now on TikTok and on Instagram Reels. People who do a lot of cooking shorts. And uh, we'll fly everyone in to, to Pase over here. Uh, for a week and then every day we'll shoot different stages of the competition and then the winner will win uh, a contract with feature dope dude i'd watch that okay so moving on i, I do want to ask you for your perspective right i'm after all these years of uploading a video almost every week has there been any insight on your end on what Make something go viral. The million dollar question brands ask. Is it more like an art now? Or is it more like a science depending on your analytics? Um, do you have a feeling that, oh shit, this is going to be big or something? Yeah, what is it now? What's the sense? Yeah, we usually can tell when something goes viral. I think in the Philippines, unfortunately, but even all over the world, I think sensationalism sells. And so the more dramatic or clickbaity something is the more it'll do well online, unfortunately. We're also still very big here on celebrity-driven content. And so when we have celebrities on the content or it's weird pairings, it usually does really well. But then more and more now, we're actually seeing stories of real people going viral, which is really great. But I mean, we're not pioneering the space at all, right? There's um, Jessica Soho has been doing it for years. And you know, there's tons of people doing it on linear TV for years. They just did it in a very different way, I think. You know, we've always been very cinematically inclined because it's creatively satisfying. And so we try to tell stories in a way that makes whoever's going to watch it feel very proud of it. And one of our big objectives now is really how do we put Filipino food on the map and how do we put Filipino stories on the map and how do we make Filipinos proud of our heritage and what we have to do. And for the longest time, if you look at any linear TV programming, if there was a specific dish prepared yeah, I don't know, in Tarlac somewhere. Usually you would see them take out these monoblock chairs and tables and they would do the cooking there because they're very embarrassed of what the state of the kitchen looked like. Uh, we're very adamant to shoot in those kitchens because we know we can make it look good. Even if it's like, it's not a what? Okay, so the kitchen looks really plain. So let's just stick to just tight shots and just make this really look, you know, cinematic and good with some camera movement and stuff for that. And we, th we think that reality is so important and that's what does well online. And so we don't necessarily know, like we're, I'm definitely not the person to say, okay, every piece of content we put out there is going to go viral, but I usually get a feeling when we're shooting something or researching something or writing the structure or something, we realize, okay, this particular story that doesn't have a celebrity element or doesn't have a sensational element will actually do good. But like, for example, we did a video on salt that did really well. And the reason why we, it did really well is because the salt is endangered. So it is, quote unquote, still dramatic, still sensation, sensationalist. So we try to focus on those stories that we know if we don't film it, then there's a potential that in a couple of years, we won't have the opportunity to film it anymore. And so one of our, our big goals this year and the years to come is really focus on heritage ingredients and you know, people and focus on people. Um, yeah, I mean, as for some people who have been doing this for a while, usually they develop like a sense, no? And I'm curious, kind of what has it been the same for you? Now, like an alarm goes off, now, hey, this could be content. Uh, I could kind of sniff this out, you know? Has it been like that for you? And have you been trying to curb it too, in a way? Now you're not always thinking about content all the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm always on the lookout for stories and depending on what I'm consuming or what I'm looking at, I'll, I'll always kind of keep my eyes and ears open to different stories. There's also a, a, you know, a, a term which is called trend jacking, which happens a lot with shorts where people see a dance and then end up redoing that dance. And I've kind of had to have that conversation with myself in terms of what does trend jacking look like in, in our business? And so each time I'm reading a news article about something that I think could translate well into video, then um, that's when I get that kind of tingly spy spider sense. Like the, a couple of days ago, I read 
I read an article about how uh, someone in the government said it was ridiculous that people are now saying there might be a, a salt shortage for a, a country that has 7,700 islands surrounded by the sea. Why the fuck do we have a, sh a, 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 a salt shortage? But after the, the white onion shortage, right? Yeah, right, and the sugar shortage. So we, we've done two documentaries about salt already. So when I read that article, like it kind of sent bells in my head and thinking, how quickly can we do a piece about this? Um, and so I'm always on the lookout for these, for these stories and it more and more now. So it used to be very recipe based, which I still do for shorts on my own Instagram or on TikTok. But for the, our, our longer form videos on YouTube, it's really, it's become more current affairs kind of based in terms of what are people talking about and how do we help visualize all of this? Okay. Um, so yeah, I think I'll, I'll wrap up our content creation questions with this um, one last question on looking ahead, right? You mentioned travel videos and the, like the cyclical nature of, of trends. Um, I find that really interesting. And one of the topics that have been fascinating me recently was this whole recommendation algorithm that, that, that IG and Facebook is, are copying from TikTok, right? Um, instead of, you know, using the friend networks of people who follow you, it's kind of like make the best, may the best content win for that will make it the, for your, for you page, right? Cause it's algorithm based, based on your specific interests. Um, Ian, I mean, have you been kind of looking into this? And I just find it interesting, especially when I talk to people from advertising, that there's sort of this convergence of social media and advertising where, you know, brand managers, instead of spending millions on a TVC, would rather like cast a wider net and then, you know, make more creators work with, um, with whatever story they can do. Ian, I guess I just wanted to kind of pick your brain on that space with speculation on what do you think the role of a content creator is going to evolve into with this new kind of reels and, and TikTok thing? It's, you know, like TikTok also, they, they shut down their Discover page a couple of months ago for a few people. So people don't have kind of like that page that tells you what the trends are. So it, it shows you that TikTok also now is focusing on trying to, to be that social app because for the longest time, it's not a social app. It's just kind of like a viewing app, right? So it's funny to see that Meta's is copying TikTok and TikTok's copying Meta in that way. So it's kind of like, no one else, what's gonna happen? Um, but I think what this this resurgence of social media has really shown is is the importance for these companies and brands to kind of rethink what advertising look like looks like. And and I've been in this now for 12 years and I remember a huge part of those 12 years was just convincing brands that you don't always need a frame by frame perfect video. Um, online to sell a product, right? I'm not a storyboard guy. I'm not a frame by frame guy. If you tell me to do a 30 second spec, I freak out. Cause I'm like, that's not how my mind works. Okay, I can't tell you what each frame is gonna look like. I'm a story guy, right? I'm based on story, based on what's interesting. Um, and that's what I keep in the edit. And so uh, for the longest time, it was really hard to convince brands. And so that's why the, the, the first step of content creation was to work with content creators for us to be publishing and to host the video. And I think what the evolution of content creation is really what happened to the Fat Chip Insight Studios and Feature is, is that these brands should become content creators themselves, right? So it's how do these brands act like a flexible content creation uh, studio or house where they can create their own pieces of content for shorts, for reels, they can hire their own in-house production team or work on longer term product uh, projects with production companies that can then also double up as creative agencies in terms of coming up with the ideas and not just shooting them and editing them, right? Um, and so my biggest push now for brands is that is you need to act like a content creator, you need to be more flexible, and you need to be okay with something that's not super polished or super pretty. And in the other way is to work with content creators, you don't have to just work with content creators where you give them a brief, they create the video and publish it you can actually contract a content creator to handle your content. What are content creators really good for is they can do everything by themselves. They can script, they can shoot, they can edit, and they know how to publish. So it's a lot of skills under one roof. So imagine if you find a content creator that's serious enough and say, hey, we wanna build our own content, can you help us? That content creator can run the content for that brand, right? So now it's, it's really cool because it's the first time 
last couple of years where I really feel all these worlds, like you said, converging. And there's a general acceptance that content is now a serious and essential part of the advertising industry. I think for the longest time, when someone said they were a KOL or an influencer, it was really kind of seen as, yeah, whatever. You're just, you're not really good at anything. You're just good at posting stuff online. But from, I mean, there are people like that, but from that you have people who have become really professionals and, and skillful and really good at their craft, right? Um, just like us, like I said, you know, I, I had zero experience in production. And one of my long-term goals is how do, we now, how do I now create a series that I could potentially pitch and sell to Hulu, to Netflix, to Amazon Prime? Because we've kind of created this, this experience now with content creation, with production, with storytelling, and we know how to do this kind of like new age, younger storytelling, which a lot of people are looking for. And now how do you go back from the internet to you know, streaming on TV? And that's, that's our goal. So it really shows how now it's all kind of, you know, muddled together. You know, the, the best video is the one that was shot and simple yeah. as that, right? Man, that's, yeah, you, you hit that uh, spot on. That's, that's so interesting because um, it, it's basically the democratization of creativity and the tools that are needed to make it. And I understand why there's pushback because the whole traditional model of brands getting agencies, agencies getting production houses, uh, everyone pitching in on what this frame looks like. It's, it's so, you know, it's hard to be flexible with something like that. And I can see people who've, you know, made their whole careers based on that system don't want to change it, but I feel like eventually it's going to catch up, you know. And I, I, when I, so when I pitch brands now, I really tell them very transparently and very, you know, very straightforwardly. I said, I ask them, what is your level of involvement here? Um, if you give me objectives and a goal and we're able to do it, then you maybe that's why you contacted us because you trust us, right? And if we present it properly enough for you, for you to understand how it's going to look, that should be enough. But if you want to go the traditional method where you have, to give your opinion in every frame, that I'll cost it very differently. Um, so we tell the brands now, we say, hey, you know, these are your, your different cost options. It really is up to you how much you want to spend. Let's, let's try to end it with a few advice questions now um, for the younger people listening out there, people who want to get into creation, filmmaking. I, got a lot of, I have a lot of Gen Z audiences, um, and I, I think for them... You know, if, if you go into college trying to be like a, a video maker or, or advertising, you, you'll end up in content creation. You know, it's, it's inevitable. So, you know, I, I did want to ask from everything that you were sharing with your story, there was like the self awareness to adapt. Right? And you noticed that you had to make that risk of taking the attention away from yourself. And I think that requires, you know, to, to know yourself, right? know thyself kind of wisdom. Um, yeah, and what kind of advice could you give to people who are finding their voice for their own content and trying to adapt on how that voice should be published? I think it's shedding expectations, I think was one of the most important things that, that I had to go through in terms of how old you are, what's expected of you, how successful you should be at this point, what you should be doing, what's working currently, and shedding all that so you can understand what is the real reason of what you're doing. I think everything makes more sense once you're very honest with yourself in terms of why you're doing something. And I think if I'm in my 20s, I would have taken a step back in the restaurants and asked myself, why are you opening so many restaurants at once? Then I wouldn't have liked the answer. And the answer would have been because I have something to prove and I want to make a name for myself, which was wrong, right? It, it taught me a lot, which is great, but it was wrong. I think once you can kind of define what motivates you or what's your reason to kind of be doing what you're doing, it helps readjust what your objectives and what your goals should be. And that's why that expectation, because that's what the expectation is what drives that sense of self and, and selfishness. And so once you remove those expectations and realize, okay, I need to do something for a living and I need to earn and I need to survive, that's, that's a given, that's fine. But then in terms of what your deep aspirations are, it should come from a place where you really do want to do something that you're passionate about or that you know will you know, bring value to a lot of people or to a lot of businesses. Okay. From what I gather, you seem to be, or at least you, you started off 
more of as a perfectionist. You don't want to do things right, you know. Before you get into something, you want to sure, be sure you studied it. How did you eventually get to a more flexible space, you know, for the people who feel like they can only publish something that is perfect, that, that has been through so many iterations? How do you get that balance where you put out something you're proud of, but you also get into the practice of publishing? I think one of the most important things is to know that if you only ever put out what you were 100% satisfied with, you would put nothing <laughs> out. And if you put nothing out, you will learn nothing. And so I think I, I was never a perfectionist. I was really never a perfectionist, but I was someone that understood that I needed to live the experience, right? So I can't talk about food unless I've opened a bunch of restaurants. I can't talk about content creation unless I've gone through this whole um, kind of, you know, arc that I've been through. And so lived experience for me is really important. And so that's what I would always look for is if I'm going to talk about something, I need to be able to justify why I'm the one talking about it. And so for me, it was more about that as well, kind of building that experience up before doing anything. But I think for, for people, and I have some people on my team who are perfectionists, who want really pretty branding, who want kind of like very clean frames and no shaky shots and things like that. And I tell them, if you don't publish and you don't keep publishing, especially online, that's what's great about online. It's forgiving, right? You can kind of keep posting a new and a better video every week or every day if you want to. Um, and what that allows you to do is to grow up and learn. Because if you don't put these things out and you don't see how people react to it, especially when it comes to content and videos and all these things, then you're always going to live in your own little world of what you think is good and what you think is perfect. And a lot of the time there's a disconnect there. Like what you might be really into, let's say you're a bird watcher and you post something about bird watching online, you'll realize no one wants to watch it, right? And so you'll need to find how do you tell that story about the birds that's more interesting. And the only way you do that is by getting feedback. And we're not in a country, unfortunately, where feedback is free, right? In France or in the US, feedback is so openly shared and it's sometimes hurtful, but all the time constructive, right? It will always help you to, to develop yourself. Whereas in the Philippines, you kind of always want to be polite. So feedback's always really restrained. So unless you have a network of like 10 people you can show your work to, and they'll give you kind of brutal, honest feedback about it, then you need to try and publish. Speaking of feedback, how do you deal with criticism? I mean, you're a public figure. You've done a lot of ventures from critiques of your restaurants from critiques of your Taho content. Um, what is your policy to, to keeping sane in, in all of this, you know? The, the policy is just not to keep sane. I think that's the most important, is I think if you pretend that it's not hurtful or if you pretend that you don't see a grain of truth in it maybe somewhere, then that's when you start creating kind of all these mental issues. And I think you hit it bang in the head when you said, I'm an extremely self-aware person. I'm extremely self-aware. I'm, I'm my biggest critic. But I, I also know how to give myself a break. So I know if I messed up, I messed up, cool. As long as it's constructive and as long as I grow from it, then I'm okay with it. So when we get flack online or, I mean, we haven't had a, a scandal in a while, but when we did have kind of like these big scandals or, or heated moments where I felt like shit, the world is crumbling down and I, I messed up royally or something like that. It's about kind of just taking the time to understand why it happened and to make sure that it won't happen again. There's no way you can fix it, especially online now. That's the scary part is, like I said, sensationalism sells. So if there's a scandal about you, whether or not it's real or 100% real, because it's so scandalous, everyone will talk about it. And then if the next day that one person that criticized you, and this personally happened to me, if the next day that one person criticized you, changes their mind and says, actually, you know what? Erwin's actually really not a bad person. We misread this whole thing. Unfortunately, no one's going to see that tweet or that statement because it's not as sensational, right? So once something's out there, you have to realize you can't fix it. The only thing you can do is you keep working towards your goal. And eventually enough people will see that and really see the value of what you bring and what you stand for. Yeah. Okay, I just have last two questions, and the first one is sort of in that space. You've talked a lot about growing from failure and realizing your mistakes, being self-aware. Is there anything you can share on what your favorite failure was? 
And this is a question I, I only put out to, to other interviewees because it's, I don't know, maybe it's, it's a cultural thing, but a lot of Filipinos, when they ask them, what's your favorite failure? It's kind of like a weird question at first. Like, oh, I don't want to talk about my failures or what. But is there anything that stands out to you in your story where one apparent failure led to a big lesson or like a, a later success? Yeah, I, I guess one of the biggest failures for me was was really the restaurant. Like, it was probably one of the darkest times in my professional life, and it started seeping into my professional life, uh, non-professional life, just because of how, you know, intense it all was. Um, and I realized that it was just mistake after mistake, and it was really chaotic and, and really got out of control because we grew way too fast, right? And, and a lot of times that's money involved, right? That's you have people that are working with you that kind of, um, rely on you to kind of keep their source of income coming as well. And it's just, it's a lot of pressure, especially when you're at a young age. And that was, was for me, remember how I was saying I wanted an MBA? That was my MBA, that failure, because it was so intense and it was over four or five years. I consider that my biggest schooling. That was my most expensive mistake. And that was my most expensive kind of um, education. And so I think people need to go through these big moments in life where they realize that maybe they messed up or they could do things better and then kind of learn from it and grow from it. So the restaurants for me would definitely be it. And everything from a personal standpoint, from a professional standpoint, from a financial standpoint, from an operational standpoint, it really kind of taught me everything that I am now applying into the fact get inside and feature in terms of how quickly do I want to grow? How do I want to manage the teams? Where do I want to spend money? Where do I invest? And where do I kind of hold back a little and more importantly how clear and how defined should your objectives be and what should they be kind of driven by you know before it was all financial success but then now it's more on you know how do we define our presence in this industry and how do we through what we're doing also do good right do good tell people stories help people out where we can as storytellers um, and that's been really, really satisfying. Nice, man. Um, yeah, really happy for you, dude. Uh, it, it does look like you guys have been learning and this new version of whatever you're doing is such a, it's a good place to be in. So at least from what I can see. Okay. So last question, just to end the interview. Uh, so far we've been talking about a lot of industry stuff, techniques to, to getting out there, but what helps you? you know, maintain the important relationships in your life. You're a dad. Anne is also busy with the showbiz life. Um, are there any rules or anything that you, you try to stand by where, you know, uh, you, you try to put family amidst like a really busy schedule? I think the biggest struggle for creatives is you can't turn it off. Yeah. Right? You can't turn your mind off. You can't turn that self-awareness off, that guilt, that... Uh, feeling of not being enough or not doing enough, it's impossible to turn that off. And there's always going to be a creative challenge that you'll want to fix, and there's always something that you want to perfect. And so you need to understand what kind of worker are you? Like, how do you work? Are you someone that can work for one month straight and decide to take one month off? Are you someone that works five days a week, uh, five days a week, and then takes two days off? And I think once you understand how your brain functions, it's not about limiting it in terms of when it functions, but it's more about organizing it and putting in that discipline. And I think as creatives, the, the biggest thing that I have learned is that I need to create space in my mind. If I don't have space and if I feel like I always have tons of ideas or I have to lead every video that's out there and I have to host every video and all I'm thinking about is hosting videos and putting them together, talking to brands and clients and I feel like my brain's overloading then I can't create anymore because all I'm doing is thinking about my job and so how do you put yourself in a situation where you create that physical space in your brain for anything for anything that might happen so I feel like every time I spend more time with my family with my kid with my wife or with my friends the more time I consciously make the effort to see my friends and I think at our age a lot of the times, if you don't make efforts to see your friends, you won't see them, right? Because everyone's busy with life. And so if you make that conscious effort, those moments of just being and just hanging out or just being in love with your family, that creates that space. And so you might think that it's counterproductive because you're not in front of a computer working or you're not behind a camera shooting, but it's probably the most productive thing that you could do as a creative. Perfect. Beautiful, man. Um, Thank you. 
Yeah, great advice, man. Erwan, thanks so much for being on the pod. Really good stuff. For sure, man. Thank you. All right, so I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you want to see the work Erwan and his team are doing, just look them up on YouTube at Feature, F-E-A-T-R. And if any of you found any value in this episode, we at Quantum Creatives would really appreciate it if you shared our episodes and shared the content on our channels to anyone else who you might find would benefit from these episodes. Uh, we really put a lot of work into this and we super appreciate it when we get feedback from the audience. Yeah, so thanks guys. Follow us on Instagram at Quantum Creatives and our new TikTok at kcreatives.geo. Thanks. <laughs>